All right, the book of Judges is where we're going to be this morning. The book of Judges, you are, uh, you are hopping in on a series here. We took off last week for our uh, worship serve morning, but then you are hopping in on a series that this will actually be our final sermon in the book of Judges, like full sermon in the book of Judges. And then next week, we're, we're going we're gonna to pick up on this and we'll move into the book of Ruth uh, next week, but this will be our last one in the book of Judges, and we've been walking through each of these judges and talking about how they are, uh, they are intended to be saviors, they are intended to be, the, the, the term judge doesn't really make a lot of sense for us, they're intended to really be saviors uh, for the people of Israel, to deliver the people of Israel, but progressively as you go through this book and you look at these judges, uh, they are less than what they should be, they are uh, they are uh, each one worse and worse and worse, and they are truly shattered saviors. And today we'll look at the man Samson, the one that uh, it, you probably heard in Prob Kids was like, uh, you know, like the, the original member of the Avengers, but not really. That's not who Samson is, as you will see as we go, uh, as we go through this morning. And I'll be honest, I probably got two and a half, maybe three sermons worth of material that I'm jamming in here. Uh, and I've edited as much as I feel like God will allow me, but we'll have to, uh, we'll have to go, get through a lot this morning. And I wonder how many of you guys in here have ever been a part of something that didn't quite live up to your expectations, where you had created this picture in your mind about how something would go, and that when the moment arrived, it just never quite reached the level that you thought that it would. Now, obviously, we all deal with disappointments. I'm not talking about being disappointed. I, I'm really talking about more of those kind of anticlimactic moments where something is building and building and building, and it seems like everything is moving towards this big moment where only this one kind of satisfactory conclusion will do, and then it just never comes to pass. Not to bring up old wounds, but for you, you uh, Tennessee fans in here, I think back to the 2001 SEC championship game. I was there in the Georgia Dome, uh, there for what should have been uh, the, the crowning moment heading to the national championship, only to watch a backup quarterback beat us in the Georgia Dome. Uh, it was one of the most brutal losses in Tennessee history, and to be honest, if we had known what the next two decades of Tennessee football was going to look like, it would have stung even more uh, if, we had, if, we could, if we could have seen all of that. But it's not just because the loss hurt, it's because everything was kind of moving towards this crowning achievement for Tennessee. They had beaten Florida the week before, uh, and, and, and they, were, they were moving to this. It just seemed to make sense that Tennessee would win this game. It seemed like all the world, this should be a moment of celebration, only to have it ripped from our hands and for us to walk out of the Georgia Dome very confused about what we had just uh, witnessed, and I was on hand to watch every single snap, and it still stings. And I know some of you don't understand that level of fandom. That doesn't make any sense to you at all. Uh, I get that, but I'm sure you have something in your life that you can look at uh, and you can think of something that was moving to this kind of thrilling climax, this celebration, uh, only to have things kind of fall apart. Our story today is set up like that. For all the world, it seems like this is like set up by a Hollywood screenwriter to, to drive to this point where we'd be able to walk out of the theater and say, man, that was good. Look at this crowning achievement, this conquering hero. We love this guy. 
only to end in a fashion that might still make a good Hollywood movie, but not because you would walk out celebrating anything, uh, but only because it would be one of those Hollywood movies not fit for family viewing at all, uh, and not quite the exciting conclusion that you might expect. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're, we're going to see how this story sets us up for this kind of, this build, this, this build to this, this ultimate, like, oh, here we are, this is great, and then we're going to see how this story, spoiler alert, tears it all right back down. It literally comes crashing down uh, on uh, our hero's head. So Judges chapter 13 is where we're at, Judges chapter 13, and I'm going to read here in verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Oh my goodness, how many times have we heard that in the last six weeks? Over and over and over again. I'm tired of reading it. I can only imagine how tired the people are of, uh, that have gone through it and how much even more so God is tired of witnessing this. So the Lord gave them to the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the, the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So here our stage is set. If you've been around church uh, or you've been around the Bible much at all, then some of this should sound a little bit familiar. A barren woman who, who she, she cannot uh, bear a, a child, she, she has no offspring, an angel, a, a messenger shows up to say that, that she will miraculously have a child and that this child will be uh, the, the, the special promised child that is to come, that will be the display of, of, of power and the work of God. This is a recurring theme that we see in Scripture. It comes up a lot, Old and New Testaments. We see it with Abraham and Sarah and with Hannah. We saw it with the, the prophet Elisha and the, the, the woman that, that helped him. Uh, we, we see it with, uh, with uh, Rebecca and with Rachel. We see it over and over and over, this story of a woman who can't have a son, who can't have a child, who is miraculously given the ability by, by God to show up, oftentimes accompanied by an angel or a messenger to say, this is what's about to happen with you. And of course, we know our favorite New Testament Christmas stories. We have Elizabeth and Zechariah and their son who's, uh, no, who, who comes to be known as John the Baptist. And of course, Mary wasn't barren, but uh, her circumstances of becoming pregnant are even more miraculous than all the ones that came before her uh, in the birth of Jesus. So Samson's story, especially for us, this side of, uh, of Jesus' life, this side of Jesus' birth, Samson's story should remind us of some things that we've seen before. It should kind of bring back to mind, bring back to our uh, attention these stories that have, that have happened. The birth story should remind us of all these other Bible stories and, and kind of put him in that category of the special promised child. It kind of builds hope to where the story is going, that God's hand is on this child that is to be born. For Israel's part, again, they've fallen back into darkness, into slavery, into worshiping the surrounding gods that are around them. God has given them back over to this foreign enemy, one that we've heard of and we know well, the Philistines. 
The difference in this cycle is that God doesn't even wait for them to cry out in pain. He doesn't wait for them to cry out in repentance. He simply comes to them. He enacts a plan of rescue before they even ask for it. Not only before they even asked for it, frankly, they probably didn't even want it. They were so far gone at this point and how much they were kind of intermarried and they were interwoven with the Philistines and their God. To the point that most commentators think that the whole nation of Israel was probably one at most two generations from not even existing anymore at all. Because they would have been so assimilated into the Philistine culture that that Israel itself would have been gone. There was almost no way to separate the two. So he enacts this plan of rescue before they even ask for it, even if they didn't know that they needed it or that they wanted it. And he's coming to get them, and he's going to go through this baby that we've just read about. It explains that he'll have this Nazarite vow that will set the course for his entire life, and that God will use this coming baby to save... Uh, to, to set, to, to save uh, God's people from the Philistines. And this Nazarite vow was a way of setting, uh, setting someone apart in devotion to God. Now, typically, the Nazarite vow would have been taken by someone who's, who really wanted to come forward and say, no, I'm fully committed to what God would have for me here. But with Samson, in this case, the vow was made for him, uh, whether he wanted to or not, before he was even conceived he was placed under this vow from, from the, the, the very earliest moment. God's going to use this baby that's not even born yet to be the one that delivers his people. So you need to understand this is a long game that God is playing here. This is not our, uh, our, initial, uh, our, our initial judges that God raises up, the assassin goes in, kills the king, everybody's good, and it happens just like that real quick. This is a long, this kid's got to be conceived, he's got to be born, he's got to grow up, he's got to go through all of these different stages, all of these things have to happen. So this is a long game that God has in mind here for this judge that he is going to raise up. It's going to take some years for all of this to happen. And this boy is going to have to live by very strict rules of this Nazarite vow being devoted to God. I want you to compare a couple of verses that I think maybe will, will give you a hint of where we're heading this morning. I want you to compare Judges uh, 13.5 says, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And then I want you to compare that with Matthew chapter 1, whenever the angel comes to, uh, to, to Mary and to Joseph and says, this is what's about to happen. It says, this is talking to Joseph. The angel says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so you have these parallel kind of accounts. You have Samson who is destined to save the people of Israel from the Philistines. You have Jesus who is miraculously conceived, who will save all of God's people from their sins. And so you have these kind of parallel ideas here. And so far, so good for our baby boy, Samson. He's got good company in Jesus. Of course, we know the story of Jesus, but at this time in the nation of Israel, they don't know the story uh, of Jesus. They don't know what's going on. All they know is that, that they are going to need a Savior. They know the story of their judges, and they know the story of their patriarchs, and that is all that they know. But they, they also know they need a Savior. 
They need someone to step in and to deliver them. And God was about to give them one. And he's going to do it through this boy. What follows here, and what I'm going to have to do is summarize, because we're going to, we're going to cover three chapters where a lot happens. And so hopefully you've got your Bibles and you can kind of uh, follow along there in the, uh, in the chapters as we go through this. But uh, what follows is this interaction between mother and father and this angel that came to bring the news of the baby back and forth that shows this great respect and, and, and worship from the mom and dad towards this angel, a beautiful show of faith from a couple that is undoubtedly surrounded by very faithless people. But they show faith in God and they show faith in the, the, the way that this God is going to work. And there, there may be some indication that, uh, that, that what they did in their interaction with this angel is kind of a, a, a vague reference to a pagan ceremony like they, they, they can't even figure out what the worship of God really looks like because they're so surrounded by this other pagan worship that they've seen their whole lives. But what you can see and is what is clear in the text is that they are absolutely worshiping God in this moment as they prepare for a son. And then look in verse 21 of chapter 13. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah, that's the, that's the dad, and to his wife. And the Manoah knew that he then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. He knows the story of the patriarchs. He knows the story of, of, of Moses and how this works. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted our burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now a son or, or, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in uh, Mahanadan between Zorah and Ashtaol. So we have this beautiful picture of all this worship that is happening, this, this, this interaction between husband and wife kind of clarifying what they've just experienced, what they've just gone through, the, the, the fear of God, but also the trust that God is going to use their son. It's a, it's a great picture. He, he, he's born, Samson is born. Samson's name means little son or little son boy. It's kind of a diminutive name of the local God that is there, not named uh, in, in response to Yahweh as the, 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 the Hebrew God, but instead the local pagan God that is there. Um, because, like I said, they can hardly tell the difference in the two. It is so uh, interwoven there. Just kind of a small picture of how the worship of Yahweh and the worship of these other pagan deities so overlapped, they almost couldn't separate the two. It was no big deal to, to, to worship the sun God and to worship the one true God. It's just part of what they did. You just do both. But either way, the stage is set for this little boy, uh, Samson. The couple gives birth to him, uh, and, and this, this promise that, that this boy is to deliver Israel is now in motion. The story is ready, and it's building action. And it's time to see God's chosen instrument in action, destroying the Philistines, because after all, that is what he is there to do. And so that's where we pick up. Fast forward in the story. He's a young man, Judges 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and he told his father and mother, not, I'm going to deliver you from the hand of these Philistines. He came up to his mother and father and said, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. 
But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from these uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She is right in my eyes. This is a really awkward passage. If you're following along so far in, in Judges 13, this is super awkward because when we first check back on our hero and Philistine conqueror to be, he isn't in the gym lifting weights, he isn't training with the army, he's not preparing to be the deliverer, he's out in a town, a Philistine town he probably should not have been in, and he's checking out the ladies. And a lady catches his eye, and whenever he gets there, he says, you know what? Mom and dad, I found the one. I need you to go and arrange this marriage for me. I must have her. Mom and dad, do whatever it takes. Bring this woman to me. He could not care less that she's a Philistine. Did not bother him at all. In spite of all the warnings about intermarriage and how that will destroy the people, he could not care less that she's a Philistine. All his buddies have married Philistines. Why should he not have the wife that he wants. And besides that, she was right in his eyes. Now, this isn't just some kind of statement about him lusting over this girl that he has found. Well, that's probably true. This phrase, right in his eyes, this phrasing kind of gets our attention. And if you read throughout the rest of the book of Judges, we'll talk a lot about this next week, but if you read through the rest of the book of Judges, what you see is that the narrator is giving us a hint that this hero of ours may not be quite the hero that we thought he was. And that phrase, right in his own eyes, becomes not just an innocent phrase, or not an innocent phrase, but a phrase of, of somebody lusting after a, uh, a woman or a girl. Instead, this is, uh, this is indication of the depravity of the people of Israel. This is indication that they have completely forsaken their God. And it becomes the refrain that becomes the defining marker of the people of Israel throughout the rest of the book of Judges. And the narrator is giving us this first hint that, that perhaps Samson is not the great hero we thought that he would be. For Samson, the Philistine is right in his eyes because she's pretty. And that's all that matters. There's no other consideration. There's no sense of what has God said about this? Who should I be pursuing? What is my purpose? None of that. This is simply, she's pretty. I'm going after her. But immediately his parents know this is a big, big problem because they still remember the promise and that the angel had given that Samson was to deliver them from the Philistines, not give them over to the Philistines. He's supposed to deliver them from the Philistines, not marry the Philistines. This is a major problem for Samson's parents. It is a major problem. They suggest he find a nice Jewish girl that he can marry, settle down somewhere, and then serve out his purpose as God has intended. But he's seen what he wants, and he's decided it's time that he has it. Friend, before we move on in this, you have to understand this is how sin works. This may, be, this may be telling the story of Samson, and we'll, we'll continue his, his story in a minute, but we've got to stop here in just a second and, and see this is how sin works. Rarely is sin something uh, we do, but we don't want to do it. This is Paul's dilemma and his frustration in Romans chapter 7. He knows in his head that he, he should hate the sin, but in his heart he seems to, that he can't help but want to sin. If sin were something that we didn't want 
then temptation would not even be in our vocabulary. But sin, by its very definition, is something that we deem to be right in our own eyes and something that we've deemed we should try and take hold of. Sin is something that we want. And listen, there is no louder refrain from our culture than this one. If it seems good to you, then it is good for you. Whatever is right in your eyes, if it seems good to you, then it is good for you. That is the message that is pounded in our heads. As your kids head back to school this week, they will be bombarded with that from their phones to their friends to their teachers to their curriculum. All around them, it will be told of them and it will be told to you everything that you see and everything that you do. The message is clear all around us. If it seems good to you, then it is good for you. Now, obviously, this is... This is uh, uh, a statement full of massive inconsistencies that, if I'm not careful, we're going to go off on a, uh, a complete tangent here. But, but this idea of it seems good for you and it is good for you only works so long as it isn't bad for me. There's a problem there. What happens when those two things run into conflict? Who wins? Well, who wins is whoever's got the louder cultural voice at the moment. That's who wins, which is why things that were good 10 years ago are bad now, and things that are good now will be bad 10 years from now, and there is no standard of right and wrong, standard of morality, because the standard is simply what's good for who, and go for it so long as it's not bad for me. But then once it is bad for me, do you see how this dance kind of keeps happening, and why we can't figure out what's good and what's right and what's wrong? Because there's no consistency. There is no moral standard. When our own test of morality is our standard, there is no standard. Which has led to all the confusion that we have all around us. But hear me loud and clear here. Lest we make this about culture wars and we all get super charged up about it because we can all fight our culture wars. This is, this is, this is about us more than it is about the culture. We all sin because on some level, we want to. I don't want you to think about someone else right now. I don't want you to think about, oh yeah, I know this guy. He does the dumbest things. I can't believe he does these things. I don't want you to think about that guy. I want you to think about yourself. You see, it's easy for me to think of sin as this big, ugly monster that is out there, that is out to get me, that I'm always either running from or trying to avoid or in my best moments trying to conquer and to slay. I love to think about sin that way because so long as I think about sin that way, then I don't have to come face to face with the reality that I actually want to sin. But the truth is that our sin doesn't look like that to us most of the time. It doesn't look like a big, ugly monster. It looks good. It looks right in our eyes. Why did Eve eat the fruit? Because it was good and pleasing to the eye. When we begin to realize that sin looks good to our sinful hearts, then we have to do the hard work of asking ourselves, why does that look good to us at all? How does that look good to us at all? And how do I change that? You see, if sin is a big, ugly monster, then sin just kind of happens when the monster takes over us. No heart work needs to be done there. I just need to get stronger to fight the monster. And for the vast majority of, of, of Western Christianity, if there is any fight against sin at all, that's what the fight against sin looks like. It is, it is prepare for the battle and fight the sin that is out there, that is out to get us. But if sin is rooted in something within us, then that tells us that, that, that 
if sin is rooted in something within us and we sin because it, is, it looks good to us, because it is good and pleasing to us, because it is right in our eyes, if that's the case, then we have a problem because the, the, the monster is not outside of us. The monster is inside of us. It is living within us. That's so much harder. But that's the biblical definition of the way sin works. It looks good. And yeah, it's gross that that looks good to us, that that sin looks good. The outsider can see that and say, dude, what are you doing? That's stupid. Don't, don't treat your wife like that. Don't treat your husband like that. Why does that look good to you? You guys look like fools. Stop it. The outsider can say that, but you can't because it looks good for you, because you've, got to, you, you've decided what you're justified in doing. And we could do this a thousand other ways, too. We could, we could apply it in so many different ways. But this is why community is so important. You need somebody to say, dude, that's gross. Don't eat that. Dude, that's, that's no, absolutely not. I know that looks pleasing to the eye, but you will surely die. We need community that will help us with that. That is part of the, the, the purpose of what the church should serve. But this is what makes it so hard. Because we're not fighting some monster outside of us. It is the monster within us. It skews the way we view things and makes us say, you know what, that is right in my eyes. So it is with us and so it is with Samson. His test of what was good was simply what his eyes wanted to see. And once they saw it, he had to have it. The rest of chapter 14, if you read through there, and I would love to just read this stuff to you because it's really pretty fascinating stories, but the rest of chapter 14 is supposed to be the marriage of Samson to his uh, would-be wife, and he has some weird encounters that kind of happen that are woven into the story on the way to get married. He kills a lion with his hands, uh, with his bare hands, and, and then when he gets to the wedding feast, he ends up telling a story about killing this lion, and it's this riddle that there's no way the guys at the feast could ever know the answer to this, uh, this riddle, and they, they can't answer it, so it kind of makes a wager with them about this riddle. If you can answer this riddle, then you know this big, this big wager kind of goes on. They can't figure out what it is, so they, they kind of press to his wife-to-be, and they say, look, we need you to figure out what the answer is to this riddle because we can't lose this bet. She manipulates him. She tricks him. She tells her friends that we're about to lose a, the, the bet, what the answer is to the riddle. They come back and answer the riddle, and Samson gets so mad. He gets so angry because of what his wife-to-be has done, how she's kind of betrayed him. She, he, he calls his bride-to-be a heifer. Not a good plan, guys. Um, he kills all 30 men that he had made this, this wager with. Uh, and then he runs away mad. He goes back to his hometown. He's mad as can be at this, uh, this heifer that has done this to him. But there's still this wedding to be had. And, and so while he's gone, this, this girl that he so thought was amazing that he is now kind of turned on and she's kind of turned on him, uh, the, the, the dad says, well, Samson's not here. Why don't you just marry his best man? And so she does. She marries his best man. Samson comes back looking for his wife in the next chapter. He's like, hey, what just happened here? And he's like, there's a wedding. I paid for a wedding. We're going to have a wedding. And so they had a wedding, and she got married off. So that's chapter 15. He comes, 
And then uh, Samson is so angry, he, he decides to kind of wreak havoc on this town for what they have done to him. It says that he captures 300 foxes or what was probably uh, jackals. He ties their, their tails together and then sticks a torch between their tails and then sends them into the city with the, the flame burning as they, as they run through the town. Of course, you can imagine if they got their, their tails tied together, they're running all over the place. It's utter chaos. It's burning down their crops. It's burning down their houses. People start coming out of the houses like, what in the world is going on? Samson's like, talk to this guy. That was supposed to be my bride, and now he's married off to my best man. Man, Judges is a trip. If you read through this, it is all kinds of stuff in here that is just wild. It's terrible stuff. But whenever they realize what this father has done, the people of the city are like, we can't have this. We need to have our crops, and we can't have him tying any more of these things together and sending them off into the city. Tell you what, here's what we'll do. We'll kill the dad, and we'll kill the bride. And they do. It's a trip, but it's dark. It's awful, and it doesn't get any better. So you, you keep going here through chapter 15 and into chapter 16. This starts another fight and the Philistines and now uh, Israel. They're kind of going back and forth with each other just a little bit. And, and you kind of got this separation that's happening a little bit. Whereas at the beginning of the story, they were almost completely inseparable. But through all of this darkness and all of this mess, you start to see a little bit of Israel against the Philistines and Philistines against Israel. God's working in this. Now, that makes you uncomfortable, just wait, we'll get there, you'll get really uncomfortable here in a minute. It just kind of keeps happening, though. And so, so all of this, this, this happens, and uh, they, they kind of get, and Samson's got to defend himself now. Like, these Philistines come after him, his people are like, hey, these guys are coming after you, and we can't stop them. He's like, I tell you what, just hand them over to me, just don't make me fight you guys, because you guys are my people. And they're like, that's fine, Go. So they, they send Samson over there. Uh, Samson grabs the jawbone of a donkey and beats down a thousand men, kills them all. He backs down from nothing. Dude is a bad man. He is strong. He can do some pretty amazing things. But make no mistake, he may have been strong, but he had plenty of weaknesses. This is where we get to chapter 16. I would love to spend more time on those things that happen, but we got to move on. So chapter 16 uh, we have what is Samson is probably most famous for. This is what Samson is, is known the most for. It opens with him visiting a prostitute and then moving on to his next love, Delilah. Delilah is yet another Philistine, and it is this flaw that is going to be exploited by the Philistine leaders. They come to her and they tell her, you and Samson seem to be getting along. You guys seem to have hit it off. You seem to be doing well. He's spending every night over at your house. I need you to do something for us. And if you do, we will reward you very well. Financially, you'll be well taken care of and you will be a national hero. We just need you to find out something. We need you to find out what in the world makes this dude so strong. What's his secret? What, what, what protein shake is he drinking in the morning? What is he doing that's making him like this? Because we need to figure it out and we need to swap out swap out his, his, his drink or, or whatever it is that's making him so strong. We need, we need to figure this out. She can't pass up the offer for financial security, becoming a national hero. So she sets out to find out what his secret is. And she asks him four different times in chapter 16 what his secret is. And, and Samson is very quickly on to her. He lies to her the first three times. And all three times, 
all three times, what he tells her is her, his secret amazingly happened. Like, Samson, buddy, you've got to open your eyes and realize what is happening here. She's trying to set you up. Here's the thing. I think Samson completely knows what's happening. I think Samson absolutely knows what's about to happen. I don't think he wants her to betray him. I don't think he wants this to happen. But I'll be honest with you. I think he is like borderline addicted here, and he needs Delilah in his life. He needs her, her, uh, her affection. He needs her love. He needs all of this. And so finally, the fourth time, he doesn't even lie to her. He just straight up tells her. She manipulates him. He falls for it, and he tells her. He says, I've got this Nazarite vow thing that is, that is going here. I've got this Nazarite vow, and this Nazarite vow is really the secret of my strength. I've been that way since I was born. And, and, and at this point, Samson has broken every part of his Nazarite vow. Every part. He's touched dead bodies, a thousand of them at least, whenever he whooped those dudes, right? So he's touched dead bodies, which he wasn't supposed to do. Uh, he's at his, his feast where he made his, his, his wager, the, it, it says that, that, that they had this feast. It's like a pre-wedding feast. But really, the, the text, it, it says it, it's a drinking feast. Well, he wasn't supposed to drink any juice, not just alcohol. He wasn't supposed to drink any juice. But at this feast, almost certainly he did, along with these other men. He's broken every part of the Nazarite vow. He's got one part that he has not broken at this point, as best we can tell. He's got long hair. He's not cut his hair yet. And he says that this is really the secret of my strength. He's still holding on to this Nazarite vow as the secret to his strength. This is all that is left. One remaining symbol that shows he is devoted to Yahweh. If he cuts his hair, then he'll be weak. So in the middle of the night, surprise, surprise, the town barber comes into the back door, cuts his hair while he's asleep. His strength is gone. And Samson is not the feared man that he was any longer. Look in Judges 16, verse 20. And she said, the Philistines are upon you. This is after he had his hair cut, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. He just assumed I'm a strong dude. I can handle it because he misunderstood where his strength came from. He thought it came from himself. He thought it came from his muscles. Thought it came from all these other things that he'd done that were so amazing. What he doesn't realize is that it was God that had strengthened him before, that had delivered him from the lion, that had delivered him from the thousand men coming after him. He thought, I'm good, I can handle these dudes. But he goes out there and they seized him and they gouged out his eyes and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him uh, with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. So you got this strong dude, goes from being the strong, good-looking guy, long hair, the epitome of everything that you'd want to be, and now he's a bald, blind man walking in circles around a grain mill in prison because essentially that's all he can do. Broken down, a shattered savior. As a, as a, as a blind man, this is all he can do is just walk in circles. There's nothing, he's just got the, the, the bar in front of him so that he knows where he's at, and that's all he can do in prison. You want to talk about anticlimactic. That's it. Samson is supposed to be this great hero that delivers his people. 
He was the promised one. He was the chosen one. He was the one the angel came to foretell. He was supposed to be the one to deliver his people. And now he's in a Philistine prison, blind, weak, milling grain, because that's literally all he's useful for. He's not become anything he's supposed to be. He's not just a failure. He's an utter failure. You have to think that as he walked in those circles, round and round and round and round, he had a lot to think about. Sadly, the things that are right in our own eyes only become very, very clearly wrong when we're enduring the the consequences for our sin. For so many of us, we can only see sin for what it is when we're enduring the consequences of that sin. It's only there that it doesn't look so enticing and so desirable. So let's just see where our story of the book of Judges goes from here. And I've, I've got to be quick, but I still got a lot to go. So Judges chapter 16, verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. How embarrassing is that for Yahweh? That Samson, the strong man of Yahweh's people, has been delivered over into Dagon's hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were married, they said, call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars of which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. So there it is. A climactic victory after all, I guess. I don't know if that's what you call it or, or not. I mean, it makes for a good story. At the end of Samson's life, he, read, he reads not like a hero, but like a complete failure. He was supposed to be Israel's deliver, deliverer. He was supposed to be the one to come and to set his people free. But all his battles that he fought in his life, he only fought because of a wedding that he shouldn't have been in and because of a wager that he never should have made. He had essentially done nothing of note, nothing that would help his people. He's not much of a savior at all. But in his final moment, he clearly recognizes how pitiful his life has become. And he goes on, uh, he, he, he goes to, to fulfill finally in his final, his final moment this great promise. He's gone from being a man of, 
full of promise to a man that is full of failure. And he decides to do something about it. In one final prayer, one final show of strength, he literally tears down the temple to the pagan god with his bare hands. Everyone there dies. In his death, Samson experiences his only victory. The story of Samson is so wholly unsatisfying. You see, if you understand that Israel was looking for a, a savior and even looking for someone who could, who could be worthy of the mantle of king to unify them, Samson could have been that man. Samson could have been that one. But he chose a different path. Obviously, there could have been a movie that could have been made here. It's a great story. But the whole premise of the movie w- would be what could have been and what should have been. This man of promise. Not about what was. But why does the narrator give us one more story of one more judge that is one more example of a hero that we that we needed and that we wanted, but that never becomes what he should have been? Samson, perhaps more than all the others, is the picture of the shattered Savior, right up to his death. And his story, perhaps more than any other, and we get the hint from the way that it starts with the promised child, his story more than any other should point us to a day when a Savior would come who would truly deliver on that promise. Samson's story begins with the echoes of Jesus' story, but his life could not be more different. Yet in spite of their drastically different lives, there are so many similarities that we can see. I want you to go back with me to chapter 14. Go back with me to chapter 14 of Judges. I want you to look at verse 4. A very odd verse right at the very beginning of the story of Samson. A lot of scholars, a lot of theologians stumble on this. It comes right when Samson had made the decision uh, about this Philistine girl that he had to have, that he deemed was right in his own eyes. Right where his mom and dad tried to dissuade him. Right at the beginning of where his path began to uh, diverge from where it should go. And this is where we get this verse. Judges chapter 14, verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking, seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. What in the world? This broken guy who's, who's di- diverging from this path that he should be on as this Nazarite pursuing a marriage that's very explicitly had been told, you can't do this. this all of this sin that, that Samson is about to embark on, you have this little note in verse 4 that, that it was from the Lord, for the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. The pursuit of the, this Philistine girl, this divergent path was from the Lord. How in the world does that make sense in any of our categories? How does that work? Let's just be clear up front here. Samson is 100% 100 responsible for his sin at all times. His anger, his lust, his sexuality, his temper, his addiction, his, his need for Delilah, his greed, his arrogance, his pride. He is responsible for it all. But God, in his sovereignty, saw the weakness of Samson and said... I'm going to use that for my purposes. 
I'm going to take that and I'm going to use it for my purposes. And he did. Samson's life is in ruins, but God accomplishes exactly what he set out to accomplish with Samson. He delivers his people through the life and the death of Samson. We may wish that weren't true. That would be far more convenient if that weren't true. We may wish that God only used good things, but the testimony throughout all of Scripture is that God can take the sins of the world, the sins of his people, the things meant for evil, and he will use them for his purposes. He will use them for good. So it is in Samson's life, and so it is in Jesus' death. Acts 2, 22, Peter preaching day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Sinful men doing sinful things that resulted in the saving of God's people. Finally, in Jesus, we have the the Savior that Israel and that we needed all along. Jesus, though, unlike Samson, was innocent. But make no mistake, it was sin that held him to the cross. We sing the song sometimes here, how deep the Father's love, and there's the line in there, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life, and I know that it is finished. Friends, God was not limited or thwarted in his plans by Samson's sin. Instead, he graciously, patiently, faithfully kept working his plan. And praise God, he is not limited or thwarted by my sin either. He graciously, patiently, faithfully keeps working. All through the cross of Jesus. Samson was a shadow of the cross that was to come, and we look forward to the cross from Samson, and now we get to look back and see the substance, not the shadow, but the substance of the cross, and how God uses sinful, broken things to accomplish his good. Samson died alone, surrounded by his enemies. Jesus also died alone, surrounded by his enemies. But unlike Samson, he did not die to destroy, but to save his enemies, of which, according to Romans, I am one. And so are you. And just like Israel, praise God, God enacted his plan of rescue before they even asked for it. This is the story of Samson. And there's more. We could keep on going. We're way over time, but we're going to keep on going this morning. What's going to happen is the band's going to come up. We're going to sing uh, a song, and then I'm going to come up, and we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper and how, how that represents what it is that God has done for us. And we're going to sing another song. So I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, and we're going to celebrate the grace and the graciousness and the patience and the faithfulness of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we see yet another shattered Savior, it is so clearly drawing our hearts and our minds to the, the Savior who was whole and complete but was shattered and broken for us in Jesus. 
Father, help us learn from the life of Samson to understand how sin works, to understand how temptation works, but most of all, to understand how desperately we need you to intervene on our behalf, to be our strength in our weakness. And Father, I thank you that my sin has not thwarted your plan, but that the rescue plan was always intended to save me from my sin. And I pray that would be true of everyone in this room. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.